It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman and the rest of the team. Hello, David. Hello. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. A little contra-intuitive program today. Stay with us. That's right, Ralph. For your entire career, you've been confronting power and holding it accountable, both governmental and corporate. For more than 60 years, Ralph has been a critic and a gadfly. But Ralph would also argue that it's possible to be a responsible corporate citizen and still be successful. In his latest book, The Rebellious CEO, he offers 12 examples of CEOs who did it right. He holds these up as role models for business leaders, as an antidote to the toxic principle that greed is good, and that the only value that matters is shareholder value. The success of these rebellious CEOs demonstrates that profits don't have to come at the expense of worker safety, public health, clean air, water, and land, not to mention a functional democracy. On today's program, we're going to highlight three of the rebellious CEOs that Ralph profiled in his book. First up, we're joined by Andy Shalal, the founder of Busboys and Poets Restaurants in Washington, D.C. Busboys and Poets doesn't just provide tasty and nutritious food. It's also a gathering place for artists and social and political activism. And Mr. Shalal's business practices conform with what he preaches. Next up, we welcome Rick Ferry, a financial advisor and a proud boglehead. What's a boglehead? Bogleheads follow the investment principles of the late investor advocate and founder of the Vanguard Group, John Bogle. Mr. Ferry is the host of the Bogleheads on Investing podcast, which is sponsored by the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy and features well-known figures in the investment world. What makes John Bogle's investment philosophy different from the rest of the pack? Stay tuned to find out. To wrap up our review of the rebellious CEO, we welcome Robert Townsend Jr. to talk about the legacy of his father and iconoclastic Avis CEO, Robert Townsend Sr. Robert Townsend Sr. was the author of a groundbreaking book on business, Up the Organization, How to Stop the Corporation from Stifling People and Strangling Profits. It was a leadership manual that outlined how to get the best production out of your workforce with a shocking strategy treating people like human beings, not like cogs in a machine. Finally, we're going to shift gears to close out the show because Ralph has some thoughts on the recent calls for peace in Gaza and the mounting public pressure in favor of a ceasefire. And as always, somewhere in there, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's eat. David? Andy Shalal is an activist, artist, and social entrepreneur. Mr. Shalal is the founder and proprietor of Busboys and Poets Restaurants in the Washington, D.C. area, which feature prominent speakers, poets, and authors, and provide a venue for social and political activism. He is co-founder of the Peace Cafe, a member of the Board of Trustees for the Institute for Policy Studies, and a member of the Advisory Council for the American Museum of Peace. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Andy Shalal. Thank you very much, David. Yeah, welcome indeed, Andy. I've called you Democracy's Restaurateur. I think you've broken the usual model for a restaurant. You have a bookstore in each of your several restaurants in the greater Washington, D.C. area, 
it's an open bookstore as people walk in. And then you have a dining area that looks straight out at the kitchen part. They can see the kitchen workers working. Then you have a room which I've called a civic dining room where you have people speaking, reciting poetry, people running for election, civic leaders, authors, and people can have dinner, listen, and engage in the discussion afterwards. So this is a a model that I said you might want to diffuse around the country. There are certain restaurants that have community sections to it, of course. Even bookstores do now, like Barnes & Noble and other independent bookstores. But tell us a little bit about your vision for the restaurants and whether you think it could spread around the country because community gathering spaces are needed and when they're informed with the kind of presentations you have in your restaurant, you even have debates on controversial topics, it's needed all over the country. So talk about Washington, D.C., and then what you'd like to see around the country. Well, if you recall, Ralph, I don't know if we ever talked about this specifically, but the idea of Busboys and Poets came from a conversation that you had with me. When I had my restaurant, Skewers, which was right nearly across the street from your office at the, at the Carnegie Building there, and I was co-chair for Jerry Brown's campaign in Virginia, Jerry Brown used to come on a regular basis to us while he was running for office. That was back in 1991, maybe, when he was running for president. And I remember having many conversations with you at the table, with Jerry and others, to talk about how can we advance the agenda of this platform that Jerry was putting forward. The platform was a very progressive platform that was way ahead of its time, as it oftentimes is for these visionaries, someone like Jerry Brown. And as we saw that the, it looks like Jerry Brown is not going to make it to be president, I think there was something that you mentioned. He said, we should have these types of places that can promote some of the platform, and, and he, used to, he used to call it platform of progress, the platform that Jerry was putting and create civic engagement for people that are ordinary people that are going shopping or going somewhere. And you suggested that we put these small shops in malls all over the country so that people that are there to buy a pair of shoes or get something to eat or something can drop in there and pick up a piece of paper or some information about how a bill becomes a law, learn about their elected officials, see how they get engaged in their community and so on. So that was kind of like the idea that sort of started prickling in in my head. And I thought, yes, wouldn't it be great to have places like that, that ordinary people can actually walk into and be able to learn so much about democracy and about civic engagement. And that came about, started with the bookstore that we ended up putting above skewers, which was called Luna Books and Democracy Center, where we were having kind of a mini version of what Busboys and Poets is today. It had a bookstore there. It had a little, you know, sandwich and coffee kind of place and then some sitting area. And we invited many notables to come and speak and you know, sit down and round tables, have a conversation. The place was kind of small. It only held about maybe 40 people or so, but and it was upstairs, so it was kind of out of the way. And I thought, I want to be able to bring that and kind of like put it front and center, have it be in the open, have it be so that people can walk in just passers by and just get a sense of 
how they can get involved, how they can engage, maybe sit down for some poetry, learn something about someone running for office, talk about important issues of the day, and so on. So that was kind of like the start of it. And that's really kind of where, where we are today. So opening up the first place, I wasn't sure, you know, that it was going to be successful, honestly, because you don't know whether there's enough people out there that are interested in this. And then I realized that, yes, people are very much hungry to learn, hungry to connect with other people they otherwise may not have a chance to connect with, learn something about their environment, their community, people running for office, and so on. And now we have eight places that we opened since the first one. And I never thought I would, I would go beyond one. We're talking with Andy Shalal, who is profiled in my new book, the rebellious CEO, the 12 leaders who did it right. And you can get this book by going to rebellious.ceo. And the reason why I picked Andy, and he's the only retail CEO in the book. We have CEOs, Ivan Chouinard of Patagonia. We have Ray Anderson, who's transforming his company into carbon neutral for carpet tiles in Atlanta. Saul Price, who started the Price Club and others, which we'll discuss, is because he really affected the community. I mean, there are hundreds of meetings that he has put people together. He takes controversial positions. He doesn't worry about the impact on his business. He's a justice fighter, the son of an Iraqi immigrant. And when Bush and Cheney unleashed their criminal invasion and society of Iraq, he was right up front about it, even demonstrated. And because Busboys and Poets, which was taken from, I guess, a poem from Langston Hughes, it gets so much attention. He doesn't even have to advertise. I've never seen an advertisement in the Washington Post or anywhere else. The restaurants are almost always packed, multiracial, multiethnic. The cuisine is nutritious, reasonably priced. He treats his workers very well. When he started, he paid his workers more than restaurants pay their workers in Washington, D.C. He's very concerned about waste, recycling, environmental issues. So the whole idea of this book, The Rebellious CEO, is to show that these CEOs reversed the business model. They didn't just have a vision to say, we're going to squeeze workers and consumers and environmental indifference to maximize the profits. No, they started out saying, we're going to treat the workers well. We're going to treat the consumers well. We're going to confront the environment. We're going to speak out against injustice. And they all made money. Every one of them in the book said they always paid attention to profits because without profits, they couldn't do all the things they wanted to do. So let me ask you, Andy, do you have other restaurant owners from around the country who say, you know, this is a great model and we'd like to replicate it. Can you help us? Well, first of all, I've been approached by many different cities all over the country that want to have a Busboys and Poets there. And I always think like, why? Why are you flying me out there, having me meet with the mayor there, meet with economic development people? They can get any restaurant they want to with the kind of offers that they oftentimes make. And I think part of it is creating that community that oftentimes I think places don't necessarily do that. Some places do, but I think a lot of places don't have that sort of multiracial, multicultural kind of spaces. And as we are going through a lot of racial reckoning in this country, 
a lot of you know changes that are happening demographically you know i think a lot of cities are really anxious and want to have a way that people can connect with one another at a higher level and i think places like that tend to i think just make the community more cohesive when people are sitting down like in our places for instance you have white people and black people and others all sitting together in the same space that's kind of unusual in this country which is really strange in a city that's 50% black here in Washington DC i noticed when i opened busboys and poets at that time there were hardly any places i don't know of any that had a mix of blacks and whites in the same space black people had their restaurants and white people had their restaurants and there was a sprinkling of both in each but there was never a place that felt organically comfortable for both to come together and so creating a space that makes that possible was really my intention and why i went ahead and did it i think the other thing yeah. that comes through in the book i think ralph is that all of these people are not business people they're really entrepreneurs the people that see a need out there and try to fix it through business and so it becomes very personal and when it's personal it's hard to separate yourself from the business you know what i mean so everything that happens in the business it's not a one off it's about me if the business is treating my employees badly it means andy shalal is treating his people badly that's a very personal way and it's it's a way for i think a lot of these folks that you write about in the book to kind of stay on mission and say like this is my name this is my legacy this is my entire being that is on the line and i think that's why i think folks like that you write about have such a deep appreciation for their workers for the business as a whole well you're right you know they do have varying personalities as i wrote in the book but they have very common character traits for example they not just treat their workers and consumers well but they speak out against injustice they criticize other companies in their own industry they're not indifferent to that they basically come from stable family environments that support them strongly and they want to create a legacy so that they're very wide range attitude of all these people it's hard to describe it without reading the book but people should know that Andy got a biology degree at Catholic University and he went to work at National Institutes of Health for a while before he started in the restaurant business but illustrating what he just said for example once i called him up and i learned that he he just spent the weekend at the people's climate march challenging trump's repeated disbelief that there is any man-made climate disruption or even an approaching risk from more burning of fossil fuels and then <laughs> i remember this one when you were just getting underway the french government was resuming nuclear bomb tests in the pacific ocean in 1995 and you led a protest at your cafe luna where you poured out bottles of french wine to protest the french government and when people say where is andy shalal i say everywhere <laughs> try and find them so tell me about how you recruit your workers when we hire people one of the things we do and i i used to do it more because we were a much smaller company but now we do it online and we do it through videos but basically i used to sit with them and now i still do it with our management team 
but our regular line staff gets to see this through videos and through other ways. But the way we do it is when we hire them, we bring people together and have a conversation around race. And now one would say like, what does a restaurant have to do with race? And why, why are you going there? And for me, I think race is one of those fundamental issues that I think this country has had a very hard time addressing and dealing with, and oftentimes pops up in very sort of unexpected ways. And people are always surprised about why is this happening? Because we don't really deal with it. And I always thought that restaurants have always been a major part of this country's segregation and then desegregation. I remember seeing a video of the Woolworth counters with young people trying to break the race barrier, sitting at the counter and being accosted by others that were standing around jeering them and shouting at them and all this. And I thought, this is really strange, you know, how eating is such a personal thing and people just want to be you know, safe and comfortable where they eat. And those that are like racist and prejudiced don't want to be around people that are different than they are. So I wanted to sort of break that barrier because I noticed restaurants in this city were not integrated, even though we're way beyond that that time of history. Still today, restaurants in the city are not that integrated. And I wanted to sort of create that. But in order for me to create that, I had to really kind of infuse that into the staff. So we have this conversation about race, a very honest conversation, so that when they're confronted with race and racial issues, they don't pretend like they don't see it. Because if you pretend you don't see race, you're probably going to be racist in this country. So I wanted to make sure that we highlight and talk about it and talk about what does racism look like to someone walking from the outside. So one of the trainings we do is, let's say, for the host, if a Black couple comes in and the, and the restaurant is mostly empty and you take them and seat them in the back in the corner, they're going to feel like you're trying to hide them and trying to put them away from the front. And they may feel a certain way because they feel like, you know, you're not really being respectful or you're being racist or whatever. If you reverse that and take a white couple and seat them in the same corner, the white couple might feel, oh, this is nice. You're giving me a nice private little space. So understanding those dynamics and how race plays out in this country and how people interpret and see race is really a very important part of our training to make sure that people do not fall into the trap of saying, I don't see race because race sees you. And unless you are proactive in how you deal with people as they walk through the door, you're gonna probably make mistakes and they're gonna look bad. And being that that's one of our mission is to create a place that, it, that honors and brings all kinds of different people together, we had to start there. That's an important part of starting. So right now, when we're talking about DEI and all that, all the initiatives that have been brought about since the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and all that, we were way ahead of that. This is not just a checkoff through the HR department, but this comes all the way from the top. And you know, you can see the difference between an organization that is just trying to check the box and stay out of trouble and an organization that really has that in its DNA. And I, I feel like we're way ahead of that conversation. We didn't have to really deal with it in the same way other organizations had to deal with it being dragged into it. Another series of characteristics that these CEOs have, we're talking about my book just came out called The Rebellious CEO, 12 Leaders Who Did It Right. 
and you can get it by going to rebellious.ceo. Three characteristics. One is they weren't secret. That is, they're very willing to share their successful business strategies with their potential competitors. The second is they admitted mistakes in public. Gino Pellucci, who started 70 companies selling a lot of Chinese food and other products, he also had restaurants. He would immediately talk publicly about why some of his restaurants failed. And I asked him why. He said, because it makes me under pressure to correct the situation, not try to cover it up or postpone it for the next time. And the other thing was interested is almost never of them, Andy, complained about regulation. They were way ahead of the regulators. And Chouinard of Patagonia was way ahead. Paul Hawken, he's in the book. People like John Bogle of Vanguard, the mutual giant mutual fund company, and the amazing Anita Roddick of Body Shop. You should see how she took on the beauty industry, just tore it apart for the way they manipulate youngsters and overcharge them and exploit their fantasies. Do you find yourself in that category? I mean, you're not secretive at all. You have admitted your mistakes. You're an artist. And I'm sure when somebody pointed out the murals in your restaurant, from the point of view of an art critic, that you took it in an expeditious manner. But generally speaking, does that describe you? It was interesting. You said that they're not secretive, which is a really key point you make there, because the reason why I think many people that you write about are not secretive is because their companies and their businesses are really a labor of love. I always say there's like, we can go to a hundred places that serve a hamburger. The idea of not giving the recipe, you know, like, oh no, we're hiding the recipe. We're not going to give it. People don't really care about that as much. There's maybe small variations in how good something is compared to another one. But really, the real flavor comes through from the ambiance that's created in the space. Many of us remember the most amazing meal in our lives. And it's oftentimes not because it's so spectacular from the food, but it's really because of the way it's served, because of the atmosphere, because of who served it. All of those things are really what makes the difference. So that's why I think a lot of us are not secretive because I can give somebody the recipe, but they're never going to duplicate what I do. It's just never going to happen because there's only one of me and there's only one of them. And that personality and that part is going to come through in whatever they do, whether it's serving or whether it's the atmosphere, whether it's the programming or anything like that. That's why when when somebody from other cities, they say, you should franchise this. And then I, I looked at it, there's no way to franchise something like this because how do you franchise an idea like that? How do you franchise? You know, it's one thing to franchise an ice cream store or a cookie shop, but you can't franchise something so personal. And I think that's one of the limitations for a lot of these, I think, organizations is they end up really kind of struggling with the idea of how do they expand and stay small. How frequent are the events at your restaurant? And give us your website for listeners who want to find out more. How frequent are your events? Well, we have events every single day and lots of them. We have over 30 poetry events a month alone between all the locations. The website is busboysandpoets.com. Right now, for instance, we're doing events around Gaza. When the invasion started on October the 7th, about three or four days into that, when the response was so horrific, immediately people 
wanted to get together and talk because in isolation, we lose. As a community, we lose and we end up being separated. So we put up a thing saying, come to talk about Gaza. And we got a lot of angry people saying, why are you talking about Gaza? Why are you speaking about that? But again, like you said, I, it's not just about pandering to the lowest common denominator, but it's really about standing up for something that you believe in. And for me, social justice and anti-war has been in my DNA from the beginning. So I'm not going to just, for the sake of business, promote something or be silent. My family moved to this country in 1966 from Iraq. We didn't go back because of the political climate that was in Iraq and Saddam Hussein, all that. And I'm not going to kowtow to being quiet and keeping to myself here in the United States. That's why we came here, is because this country has the opportunities. And I always say that as an immigrant, I am the insurance policy for this country because immigrants feel fascism and feel the disconnect between the values and what really happens much sooner than other people that have lived here. And so it's always been the, the idea of Busboys of Poets was there to kind of like reignite my interest in this country. When I saw 9-11 happen, it was really depressing at how we responded to that and how we went insane all over the world, just killing lots of innocent people and destroying lives. And I just didn't want to live in a country that believed that's the solution. So I really wanted to find my tribe. I wanted to find these people. Who are these people? And when I created Busboys and Poets, the tribe came. And it gave me this re-energized love for this country, really, and that there are a lot of people that feel like we could do better. And I wanted a space that I can gather these people and really feel that sense of power of that energy sort of coming together under one roof. Well, you know, in conclusion, Andy, we're talking to Andy Shalal, the founder and manager of Busboys and Poets, about eight of them now in the greater Washington, D.C. area. I was very taken by how calm and purposeful and coordinating you were when Bush and Cheney destroyed your ancestral country in a criminal invasion. But you were always bringing people together, educating them about the history of Iraq, going back to Mesopotamia. And you're very level-headed in that way. You've gotten a lot of prizes, deservedly, and you're not winding down. You're always thinking of new ways to bind the community together. So thank you for all that, Andy. I am always so really shocked by the way that we conduct ourselves sometimes, and especially right now, what's happening in the Middle East and in Gaza and how we are aiding and abetting a genocide of an entire population, ethnic cleansing, and just feeling like this is the right thing to do. I'm always really shocked. But yeah, I am not going to stop talking. I'm not going to stop raising hell because I think that's what democracy is supposed to look like. I think the other thing is the restaurant industry, it touches so many other industries. It touches how we bring food about to the table. It touches how we create energy, sustainable and otherwise. It touches labor laws. It touches business laws. It touches lots of different elements that really come together. And that's why I think the restaurant industry really has even a, a higher responsibility because we're able to make an impact on many different types of, of industries. 
so I think that was uh, also my interest in it. I think there are, you take the restaurant association, for instance, oftentimes these types of places tend to be very conservative. They just want to maintain status quo and it requires an alternative type of seeing things. And then, you know, I always feel like a place like Busboys of Poets here in, in DC has a responsibility because if we can show that change is possible, others can come on board as well. So I'm, I'm always speaking up because I think that's important to let other people know that change is possible and it's not as painful as they may think it is. Well said. We're out of time, Andy. Is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't mentioned? And then please give your website slowly again for our listeners. No, thank you. I really appreciate being included in, in the book. I'm honored and humbled. The website is busboysandpoets.com. And my name is Andy Shalal, A-N-D-Y-S-H-A-L-L-A-L. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and other, other ways, and I'm always speaking out on various things. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me this platform. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you. We've been speaking with Andy Shalal. We will link to Busboys and Poets at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we're going to boggle your mind. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, December 22, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Medicare Advantage plans routinely reject claims for necessary care. That's according to a report from NBC News. The CEOs of hospitals in rural areas told NBC that the Medicare Advantage plans routinely deny reimbursements for necessary care. In 2006, we went from being in the black to losing $1.6 million overnight, Dr. Kenneth Williams, CEO of a Mississippi hospital, told NBC News. That hospital has since been forced to close its doors. We went from smiling to crying, Williams said. The federal government says that Medicare Advantage plans denies payments for nearly 20% of claims that meet Medicare rules. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. Other financial gurus would try to boggle your mind with complicated investment portfolios. Our next guest is going to talk about the man who advocated a much simpler investment philosophy. David? Rick Ferry has worked for 35 years as a financial advisor, and he's the host of the Boggleheads on Investing podcast. Mr. Ferry was a pioneer in low-fee investment advice and portfolio management using ETFs and index funds. He has authored seven investment books and hundreds of articles published in Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, and professional journals, and he is the former president of the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Rick Ferry. David, thank you so much for inviting me today. Welcome indeed, Rick. The occasion is obviously the profile in my new book, The Rebellious CEO, 12 Leaders Who Did It Right, of John Bogle. John Bogle got out of Princeton, applied his senior thesis to his immediate job in the mutual fund industry, didn't like what he saw, too high fees, stagnant imaginations. And so he started Vanguard, which is now a seven or eight trillion dollar multiple mutual fund index fund mutual firm. He started it as a mutual, which means if you invest in Vanguard, you're technically a part owner. He didn't want to have shareholders and 
have to take the calls of Wall Street analysts berating him for every quarterly earnings forecast he may not have met. And he became a philosopher. He became someone who diffused his new way of protecting investors and having them get an adequate return over the long run and not be induced to engage in in and out market manipulation and buying and selling stocks. He pioneered the index fund, which has proven again and again to be the best way for long-term investors to invest and get a stable return. He wrote a book before he passed away, one of several books called Enough, where he was in effect counseling his peers and the young people coming into the industry not to be too greedy and to reflect on the purposes of life in a larger sphere. When someone asked him, what do you credit your career success to? He said, quote, not to brilliance or complexity, but to common sense and simplicity. Or as one observer said, the uncanny ability to recognize the obvious. And he said something about complexity as a form of control in the marketplace. Look at the fine print contracts, for example, that produce consumer peonage and consumer servitude for hundreds of millions of consumers. He said this about complexity, quote, mark me down too as an adversary of complexity, complexity that obfuscates and confuses, complexity that comes hand in hand with costs that serve its creators and marketeers, even as those costs thwart the remote possibility that a rare sound idea will serve those investors who own it, end quote. So, Rick, you knew John Bogle over the years. The Bogle heads were formed by people all over the country, not just in admiration of John Bogle, but to spread the investment strategy and the accountability and the long-range stability that he pioneered. Warren Buffett once said that John Bogle is one of the few people who actually has revolutionized his industry. Mutual fund fees are a lot lower among Vanguard's competitors because he forced them to go lower. Otherwise, they were going to lose a lot of mutual fund business. What's your view now of John Bogle and, and his legacy? Tell me a little bit about the man. Well, he was very determined. <laughs> he believed in giving investors a fair shake on Wall Street. He believed that we should get our fair share of market returns. He believed that there was a conflict of interest in the investment industry between the people who owned the investment companies and the investors in those companies, the people who bought the mutual funds. And he said, that's a, you cannot serve two masters. So when he created Vanguard back in 1974, he decided it was going to be a mutual benefit company and that the owners of the mutual funds would own the company. And now that helped to drive costs very low because Vanguard is basically an at-cost company. And it's been a tremendous benefit to all of us. It has saved investors billions and billions of dollars in fees that otherwise would have been lost to advisors, inve the investment industry, mutual fund companies, and so forth. So he's called St. Jack by a lot of people, and for good reason. He has really uh, helped us all. And tell us about how the Bogleheads 
got underway and what they're doing now around the country and give a website. The Bogleheads was started in the late 1990s by a fella by the name of Taylor Larimore, who will be 100 years old this January, this month coming. So he started it on the Morningstar forum where they had forums there where you could talk about stocks, you could talk about various investment topics. And he asked Morningstar if they could start a Vanguard diehard forum, which were people who wanted to just discuss Vanguard mutual funds. And Taylor started this. The second person to join was Mel Lindauer. And this was the beginning of the Bogleheads. It wasn't quite called the Bogleheads back then. It was called Vanguard Diehards. But what happened was over time, over time, we moved off of the Morningstar forum and onto our own website called Bogleheads.org. And the, the word Boglehead started to be, it was a derogatory term at first, you know, all these people who are Bogleheads, you know, they're following this indexing strategy. I mean, how foolish is that? And we like the term Bogleheads. So we started calling ourselves Bogleheads. And when we created our website and got off of the Morningstar site, became Bogleheads.org. Then Jack started a nonprofit organization called the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy. And that became one of the funding sources for creating the content and for helping to run the uh, Bogleheads.org website. But it's all nonprofit. We're all just people helping people. We're all advocates of low cost investing, following the principles that John Bogle had laid out years ago of thrift, low cost, don't time the market, be diversified. And there are several others. And this has grown to a very, very large organization. The nonprofit organization has its own website, and that is BogleCenter.net. And then from there, you can get to the Boglehead site, you can get to the podcast. We have uh, various chapters all around the country. We have a wiki, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Reddit. And so we have a followers, not only in this country now, but all over the world, millions of followers who are now happily calling themselves uh, Bogleheads and, and saving a lot of money and learning. Everybody's helping each other. Bogle is spelled B-O-G-L-E. So it's Bogleheads, B-O-G-L-E. Go ahead, Rick. Correct. Bogleheads. So now we run a conference every year. Uh, last year, we had over 500 people uh, and everybody pays to go. I mean, I paid to go to the conference, even though I was on the committee and I uh, help run the conference, I, I still bought a ticket. So uh, the, everyone is volunteers their time. And we have great speakers. It's done once a year. Last year, it was in Bethesda, Maryland. And next year, it's going to be in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Two years ago, it was in Chicago. So we moved around the country. But it's open to everyone. We keep the cost at cost. And uh, it's just a great event for three days for people who are new to Bogleheads and also people who are very experienced and been coming to these things for a long time. Well, John Bogle had a sign on his desk, and it was from Albert Einstein's famous quote, quote, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts, end quote, to indicate how qualitative he was, not just quantitative. He was good with numbers, but he had a bigger vision. Anything else you'd like to tell us? our listeners about what the Bogleheads intend to do in the coming future? Well, we hope our conference continues to grow. We hope to expand the number of local chapters, not only here in the United States, but all around the world. As this spreads, 
more and more countries are adopting the indexing strategy. Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg has called the Bogle effect. Uh, it's not only in this country, but it, it's growing everywhere. And it's really just saving people a lot of money, learning how to invest simply in a low cost, tax efficient way. And we believe this is the best way for most people to invest and they'll end up with a higher wealth because of it. So that's our mission to build a world of well-informed, capable, and empowered investors. And that's what the Bogle Center and the Bogle Heads are all about. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Rick Ferry of the Bogle Head Group, the spreading, as he said, all over the country. John Bogle was interested in investors investing, not speculating. And he passed away in 2019, almost reached the age of 90, had a large family, and really was a complete human being, if we can ever describe that kind of personality. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you again for having me. We've been speaking with Rick Ferry. We will link to his work and his podcast at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Stand up, stand up. You've been standing way too long. My father was a businessman, and I can remember on his bookshelf was a book called Up the Organization. My dad was very good with people, and now I can see the influence that book had on my father's management style. David? Robert Townsend Jr. is the son of Robert Townsend, who was president of Avis Rent-A-Car from 1962 to 1965, and the author of the best-selling and iconoclastic business manual, Up the Organization. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Robert Townsend Jr. Thank you. Welcome indeed, Robert. People should know that Up the Organization is an all-time classic. It's as relevant today. And what Robert Townsend did was highlight a different definition of bureaucracy and hierarchy than we're usually cognizant of. Those two words are usually bureaucracy and hierarchy applied to government, giant government agencies. And he took on corporate bureaucracy and corporate hierarchy in terms of his writings, his lectures, the way he ran Avis Renicar, creating that slogan, we try harder because we're number two to Hertz. And also in a follow-up to Up the Organization that he also published. So I want to ask you, Robert, you obviously saw a different side of your father and you have personal information, which is not in this book, about what drove him to basically take on enormous pushback forces by corporate bosses who basically said, how dare you? How dare you say this? And you don't know what you're talking about. And he would always smile and keep going. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. he, he was a, Prince, a Princeton graduate, and he, he displayed that self-confidence. Tell us about your dad. Well, he was... Yes, definitely an iconoclast, but I don't think he saw himself that way. He, he didn't just believe in partnership. He saw that that was the only thing and teamwork were the only things to accomplish. So he found just through serendipity or synchronicity, partners everywhere he looked. And I, I was aware of all of this growing up when this was happening, you know, as a little kid. My dad never treated me like a kid. He treated me like a partner. And he was like that through his whole life. And tell us about your siblings and the revered oh, Claire, Claire Townsend. Yeah, Claire was my younger sister. 
I opted out at basically a guaranteed entry into Princeton, which I thought was would be a waste of an opportunity. And my father agreed. I was interested in rock and roll at that time. I was like 18 years old. And so Clara, who's two years younger than me, was the obvious candidate. And when she graduated from Miss Porter's school, she served as a Nader's Raider. And she edited the book, Old Age, The Last Segregation, which is still a brilliant accomplishment. This is a great story, listeners. She came down to Washington with some of her classmates. They were at a high school in Connecticut. They had spent this some of the spring volunteering in nursing homes. They were appalled by the conditions. And we thought, okay, let's take them to Washington with supervision of one of their teachers, and they're going to investigate the files of the government on nursing home inspections and get a lot of information together. And they produced this little paperback. And in what would never happen today, they were invited. Here they were, 18 years old. They were invited to testify for the U.S. Senate the House of Representatives, national TV, and they actually put forces in motion to improve somewhat nursing home conditions, which are, are a never-ending challenge, by the way, consider what happened during the pandemic. But here they were being told, you're too young to do this serious work, and Claire Townsend and her classmates proved them completely wrong. And the book is an example of that, as well as their well-considered testimony before the U.S. Congress. Tell us about Robert Townsend's lecturing and consulting to try to shake up these corporate bureaucracies and the pompous hierarchies. This occurred after his leaving Avis, which you point out accurately was due to Avis's acquisition by ITT. And the reversal of all that he had accomplished as taking over Avis Renicar when he did. So he embarked on a new career of consulting. And I talked to him about this all the time. He would come back from consulting with somebody or other and finding out all they wanted was me to tell them they were doing it right. And I nothing I said actually made any difference. And with one corporation he was working with, CRM, the publishing training rentals, the publishers of Psychology Today, and they had called him in to advise them. And they were diversifying and coming out with new publications. And my dad advised against it. And they said, well, okay, um, well, we'll take that under advisement, but not really. They did eventually, but I actually wrote up the organization as a memo to the staff and board the entire organization. He did it over the course of a week and wrote a prototype of up the organization to the management and staff at CRM in Southern California and put a copy on all the He spent a couple of days over a weekend and made copies of it on their copy machines and put a copy on everybody's desk and left. That's the origin story of up the organization. Robert, the subtitle tells it all. It's up the organization, how to stop the corporation from stifling people and strangling profits. That's the subtitle. And, you know, he he did practice what he preached when he came on to head Avis. The top boss wanted to pay him a $50,000 annual salary in 1962. 
and he insisted that he be paid $36,000, quote, because that's the top salary for a company that has never earned a nickel for its stockholders, end quote. Exactly. <laughs> that's how irreverent he was. He was like that in every way. And actually, that seemed normal to me and made sense, you know, growing up in his shadow, as it were. But Another one of his sayings was, quote, the way forward is to create an environment where people motivate themselves. That cannot happen without the top persons in a company going to the bottom level where sellers and buyers interact, end quote. Yeah. So that is needed I, more than ever before in these pompous, giant multinationals where the, the levels between the top and the bottom may exceed 20, 25 levels. And they don't know what's going on at the bottom in their company. They don't get the feedback. They're up there in executive suite surrounded by sycophants. I know one of the first things he did when he took over Avis was not to have a secretary. And he would answer telephone calls. He would reserve every day between 11 and 12 in the morning to return the telephone calls one by one. That was my dad. You said your father raised you as a partner. What does that mean? Could you? Well, we, for a few years, there were five of siblings and my mom. And every night there was a dinner at home for a few years while all, we were all there and he was still at home and commuting to Wall Street. And he'd have dinner with us and he'd conduct that meeting like a board meeting. And he'd go around the table and ask each one of us what happened today and is there any problem, you know, are you having any problems? And if somebody dared to say, oh, I got an A on this, and he would dismiss that immediately say, no, I'm interested in what the problem is, and let's fix it. So we were operating as a team from the get-go. Well, listen, if you want to read an all-time bestseller, which is still selling, go to Up the Organization and read it. It applies almost everywhere in our bureaucratic society and empowers you with insight and verve and Robert Townsend's many examples of how to take a top-down organization and make it more bottom-up and for the benefit of the people. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've been speaking with Robert Townsend Jr. We will link to the rebellious CEO at ralphnaderradiohour.com. So, Ralph, you want to update us further on the situation in Gaza. What do you have for us? Well, it seems to be an army that's in a riot stage. They're hitting Christian churches. Snipers just killed the mother and daughter inside the third oldest church in Christendom, where people were being sheltered. They're bulldozing cemeteries, croplands. They just bulldozed a healthcare facility with wounded people, burying them alive. It's like they're not under any kind of military discipline. And what's going on is being severely undercounted in terms of fatalities. The conventional number is 20,000. But as I've pointed out, you can't have 2.3 million people, 85 of them now homeless, wandering around in a tiny enclave being bombed 30,000 times by missiles and F-16 bombs on schools, water mains, hospitals, clinics, homes, apartments, mosques, churches, marketplaces, 
and have no health care, no medicine, no food, no water, no electricity, and only lose 20,000 lives. There are thousands of people who are missing, thousands of them under the rubble, great percentage of them children, and the full casualty toll is going to stagger the world when it comes out. But a ray of light occurred in the December 13th New York Times newspaper. It was a paid notice by the legendary Israeli Civil Liberties Group, Beth Salem, signed by 16 other Israeli human rights groups representing rabbis for human rights, military reservists, and other human rights groups. In a repressive climate in Israel for dissent against the Netanyahu coalition that is basically demonstrated its original genocidal language of a total siege, no food, no medicine, no electricity, no fuel, no water. Nobody can survive that. And we're on to our almost 80th day of such a siege of civilians, the entire Gaza Strip. And these human rights groups titled their letter to Joe Biden, The Humanitarian Catastrophe in the Gaza Strip. And they said, since the war began, Israel's policy has driven the humanitarian crisis in Gaza to the point of catastrophe. Not only is it an inevitable outcome of war, as a part of this policy, soon after the fighting began, Israel stopped selling Gaza electricity and water, closed its crossings, and blocked all entry of food, water, fuel, and medicine. They cited international law and committed war crimes. Then they talked about the helplessness to help by UN agencies and other humanitarian organizations about how infectious diseases are spreading, starvation is spreading, and all kinds of people and children are dying because there's nowhere to help. They don't have fire trucks to put out spreading fires. Their ambulances have been targeted of the Israeli Air Force, and it shocks the most poignant description of what people are observing and experiencing there. And then they put it to Biden. They say, you, Mr. President, have the power to influence our government, change its policy, and allow humanitarian aid into Gaza in accordance with Israel's legal obligations. We are in the final throes of an emergency, end quote. This is at a time when Biden is pushing for $14.3 billion more dollars, charging the U.S. taxpayer for Netanyahu's colossal defense blunder on October 7th. And there's every indication that early next year, this genocide tax is going to go through a compliant Congress. And if it does, that means more military capability and ammunition and weaponry to be used on what is left of the survivors in Gaza. So it is important to recognize that if you criticize what's going on over there, just focus on the Israeli regime of Benjamin Netanyahu, which has hijacked Israel. And there's still a lot of people in Israel and a lot of groups who are horrified and are trying to counter the jingoism and militarism that has taken over the country after October 7th. So I think we've got to, as Americans, keep saying what Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, are saying all over the country in protests, nonviolent civil disobedience, quote, not in our name, end quote, end quote, 
never again for anybody, end quote. Look up their websites and support their efforts. Thank you for that update, Ralph. I want to thank our guests again, Andy Shalal, Rick Ferry, and Robert Townsend Jr. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to TortMuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Please remember the motto, readers think, thinkers read. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First up, Steve and the gang have questions for Andy Shalal. Steve, you have a question or comment? Yes, I do. And Ralph, this is actually more directed to you. How much does Busboys and Poets remind you of your father's diner in Winstead? Because you've always talked about that as being a hub of civic activity and conversation. Well, in some ways, very much so. My father saw the restaurant as a gathering place. People would say, for a dime, you got a cup of coffee and naters and 10 minutes of political conversation. And when he would be chided, people would say, Mr. Nader, you know, you're talking out on controversial issues. You're going to lose business. He said, you know, when I sailed past the Statute of Liberty in 1912, I took it seriously. Do you? <laughs> so it's very much what Andy does and has done. And in those days, you know, the, there wasn't an ethnic cuisine. It was American food. There were no bookstores or anything like that. But it was a large space restaurant, and a lot of people came to discuss things. Jurors came on their lunch break from the county courtroom down the street, traveling salespeople, summer camp parents. So I got a real exposure, and my siblings did too to a huge variety of people and conversations. So yeah, I mean, that's probably why I had that early conversation with Andy. David? Andy, managing people is an art. When humans gather in an office, Thanksgiving dinner, restaurant, bookstore, a community center, there's usually one or two divisive individuals who can't help but consciously or subconsciously undermine the proceedings. How do you recognize them before you hire them? That's really tough because a lot of times when people interview really well and suddenly they're in and, and they see something totally different, 
I think being present is really important. I will come into place and sometimes incognito, sometimes that, you know, if somebody knew, they may not know me or, or whatever. And I can tell, you know, I think after a while, after you've done this for some time, you can tell who are the people that are just there, just as sort of pass the time and who are the people that are there that really do care. I always think of hospitality as kind of an ultimate way of service because there's something very spiritual about serving someone a meal. You know, you're touching them, not only their taste buds, but you're touching their heart, you're touching their mind, you, you know, you're touching so much of them. And I want to make sure that when you're doing that, you're doing it in a way that really honors that space that you're taking up. And oftentimes, you know, when you create an environment, people will push people out that they don't feel belong. If somebody is there just for the ride and not really there committed in a more serious way, their teammates end up being the ones that really make them leave, honestly. And that makes it a lot easier from the perspective of management. Hannah? You talked about the lingering segregation in restaurants and, and hospitality. Hospitality work and the people who do the various jobs is kind of one of the major kind of last battlegrounds for workplace segregation. There's a lot of uh, discourse around, you know, front of staff versus front of house staff versus back of house staff. Did you find that going into hospitality was a kind of a, a field ripe for kind of revolutionary management change? Or did you have you found it difficult to make waves in the industry? Well, it's it's not easy. You know, it's hard to break patterns. It's hard to break habits. It's hard to break traditions. Take tipping, for instance. We've been talking about eliminating tipping for a long, long time. And yet people will balk. Customers balk. Servers balk. Bartenders balk. So that weaning out of a system that was based on slavery, really, and beyond, is very, very hard to change. Having said that, I think there is an interest, especially with young people, to look at a different paradigm and see like the way business does business isn't always necessarily the right way. And they're willing to stand up for it. And now, you know, with social media and all of that, there's some checks and balances in how businesses conduct themselves because you can easily fall into some sort of viral a negative cycle and that hurts business. So that by itself can keep people uh, in line. And now the gang have questions for Rick Ferry. Rick, I wanted to ask you, and it's probably a dumb question seeing as you're part of this organization, but when a charismatic leader who has a vision passes on, frequently it's hard to maintain the values that, that the power of that charisma brought to it. How do you do that? How can you be assured that the Vanguard and, and what it stands for will remain uh, what Bogle's vision was? Well, when it comes to Vanguard, we don't have any say except public voice of keeping Vanguard in the John Bogle spirit. I mean, obviously, it's become a huge organization. As Ralph pointed out, they're managing $7 trillion in assets. And I think they're managing more than 10% of the value of the entire stock market is managed by Vanguard. So, I mean, we all we can do is say what we think. We are listened to. The people from Vanguard do monitor the forum. They cannot participate in it for compliance purposes, but we have a very good rapport with uh, Vanguard. I've interviewed many people from Vanguard on my podcast, the Bogleheads on Investing podcast. So 
all we can do is hope. And so far, so good. I mean, everything is going well. And they are continuing to, as John Vogel would say, stay the course. And happily, one of the things that helps drive down fees is other companies are changing their own view on this. I mean, for a long time, it was Bogle's folly and who wants to get just an index return, an average return? I mean, you could do better than that. Well, that's all changed now. So Fidelity has index funds, iShares has index funds. I mean, there, there are lots of index funds providers all competing with Vanguard because it's such a good idea. So I think that this helps stay the course. And organizations like yours are helping, you know, get the word out. The more that people hear about it, the more they are interested in it. And, and this just this spreads the word even faster. So I thank you for that. David? Am I wrong to think that all mutual funds other than index funds are fraudulent over the long haul? Am I wrong to believe that nobody, absolutely nobody can predict the future and pick stocks? That Warren Buffett doesn't pick stocks. He, he buys controlling interests in companies. What would happen if everybody woke up to the fact that, in my opinion, all stock brokers and all mutual funds other than index funds are fraudulent? What would happen if Americans woke up to the truth that nobody can outperform the market and we all became passive investors? If, if we all only bought index funds and became passive investors, what would that do to the stock market? So let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, we don't believe that mutual fund industry or active management is fraudulent. They may be misguided, but they all are catering to a, a belief out there in the general public by some people that you can outperform. So they're selling product to that belief. You can't. I don't mean to interrupt, but you cannot outperform the market, right? You know that you can't outperform the market. Well, it, statistically, there have been people who have outperformed the market. Now, whether it was through luck or skill, there's been a lot of academic studies on this. Uh, Gene Fama, Ken French did some studies on this as well. Nobel laureate Gene Fama, and they found out that a very, very, very small percentage of mutual fund managers who try to outperform the market actually have had it statistically skill. They have skill. Now, you don't know who they are in advance, so you can't pick them out in advance. But looking backwards on the data, you'll see that less than I think the number was 2% of all mutual fund managers who are trying to outperform actually have had skill. Whether that continues or not, I mean, that we don't know. So all we can do is look at the data, right? This is very academic driven. This is not, you know, just, oh, I think this, I think that as far as, uh, you know, index funds are better. No, this is academically driven. There's something out there called Sharp's Math. Bill Sharp wrote a, an article, oh, must have been, 40 years ago that said, you know, in aggregate, we're all the market. All investors combined are the market. So you can either get the market return through an index fund, or you could get less than the market return because there's a cost of trading. And so anyone who says that in aggregate, somebody can outperform the market, uh, the market can be outperformed by index funds is not speaking the truth. And that's true. So the idea of indexing is to be broadly diversified and to have very low fees and be very tax efficient and not trade a lot. And this floats to the top where you end up in the top 10 percentile. Now, are you gonna be number one? No, because 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we're gonna be able to look back and find one or two or three mutual fund managers of funds that actually did outperform. The problem is 
can you pick them out today? And the answer is no, you cannot. Now, Ref continues his conversation with Robert Townsend Jr. and finds out how he got his nickname, Tuna. I was talking about Claire going to Princeton. She occupied my space. She was the first in the first class that accepted girls at Princeton. And she graduated with honors and proceeded to an amazing career of her own. And she became vice president of 20th Century Fox at a very young age. Yeah, well, she was what they called a baby mole back in the early 70s. Yeah, Clara's an amazing person. Your dad adored her. He actually was mystified by all this. You mentioned in the book, you talked of dad about uh, his patrician background. But what you missed was that his father died. Clinton Paul Townsend died when dad was 10 years old, shortly before my dad's 11th birthday. So he's really raised by his mother and the gentleman who took care of the caregiver. And he did live in a, grew up in a Long Island estate that was amazing. But my dad was basically a reader. He loved learning. He didn't have many friends. He got through Lawrenceville and, but he was, you know, really interested in how things work. He wasn't interested in what was already okay, what was working, but he was really interested in what could we do to fix it. And that was his whole thing. But he originally, his motto, if there was one, and I tried to research where it came from and got all sorts of things, but it's, there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And he lived by that. Very true. He despised policy or personnel manuals of any kind. He once said, if a writer about a problem couldn't put it on one page, he or she doesn't understand the problem. Anna? I might venture to say that that's maybe the reason you can't find a source for that quote, is because its author didn't care about getting the credit. Exactly. (laughs) My question is about family businesses. Our popular idea of a family business is you're raised by, you know, your parents own a hardware store, you grow up working there on weekends, and you inherit it. But I've always said with some hubris that as the daughter of a father, I know enough about my dad's craft that I could go in and do his job any day of the week. And it kind of turns, I firmly believe that there is this ineffable piece of a family business that turns you into kind of a private intellectual or a private expert in the field. And in Ralph's book, he lists some of the Townsendisms that your dad coined. I'm curious if, if you have any Townsendisms either of your own or that are maybe lesser known insights into, you know, not narrowly, you know, corporate management, but it seems like there's a the broader. Oh, it, was, it was all, he was all over the place. It didn't matter if it was corporate or business or playing golf, which is his passion. One of them is this, Robert, secrecy, he called a child's garden of diseases. And then another one was, quote, call yourself up when you're on a business trip or a vacation. Pretend you're a customer. Telephone some part of your organization, ask for help. You'll run into some real horror shows. Then try calling yourself up and see what indignities you build into your own defenses. End quote. That's one of my favorites. Thank you so much. By the way, you were one of his significant influences as a age didn't make a difference. 
gender didn't make it. Oh, Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem actually had him further up the organization was inspired by the glass ceiling. And he was made an honorary woman by Betty Friedan back in the day. And it was true. He had no bias. He saw everybody as essentially the same, which they are. And the things that motivate people are things like fear and greed. And, you know, that's just an obvious fact when you are exposed to it. Well, we've been talking with Robert Townsend Jr., who's the third child of Robert and Joan Townsend. And Robert, why are you called tuna? Uh, it's a long story and has nothing to do with fishing or anything like that. I, <laughs> I, it's just based on my initials. I was never Bob Townsend. More than half my life, I've been called something else. Interesting, dad was always called Townie. He was never called Bob or Robert. He's called Townie Townsend. And this goes back as probably genetic. But yeah, I got saddled with this nickname and it stuck like 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> and now here's Hannah with a little bit more lore about how Robert Townsend Jr. got the nickname Tuna. We just got an email from Robert Townsend. From, yeah. Sorry, from Tuna. It's an addendum with a, a story about his dad and a note about the nickname. He said addendum. When I was about 13, when dad was in transition from Hertz American Express to Avis, he took me aside and told me, quote, the most important thing in life is to love what you do, get good at it, and people will pay you to keep doing it. Most importantly, he clarifies that his name went from Bob Townsend Jr. to B.T. to Big Tuna to Tuna. Finally, Steve and Ralph discuss the ongoing conflict in Gaza. It does seem like the most articulate, powerful voices are coming from Israelis or American and European Jews who are against this. And it, you know, the longer it goes on, the more clear this becomes. It's not doing Israel any favors, and it's not making Jews any safer. Well, the fatality count will hit 100,000 shortly if they can ever count the ones whose names are not registered in no longer operating hospitals or morgues. The 20,000 is just based on the actual names that the health ministry has brought together. The terrible morbidity effects, the mental health damage to these children are never going to go away. And we need a congressional investigation, and there will be plenty of investigations in Israel because Netanyahu now couldn't win a re-election. He's very unpopular. He's doing what he's doing largely to save his job and prolong the time before he is held accountable by his own people in Israel. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. The tide seems to finally be shifting in favor of a ceasefire in Gaza. Democracy Now! reports, quote, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron and German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock called for a sustainable ceasefire in a joint article in the Sunday Times. The pair said efforts should be focused on a two-state solution after the assault comes to an end. The UK and Germany had previously declined to call for a ceasefire and abstained from voting last week on the UN General Assembly's ceasefire resolution. Also on Sunday, French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna called for an immediate and durable truce while meeting with her Israeli counterpart Eli Cohen in Tel Aviv, saying... 
too many civilians are being killed in Gaza. This comes as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin arrived in Israel earlier today, where he's expected to focus talks on transitioning to a lower-intensity war. Many wonder why these countries are changing their position so abruptly. One explanation could be the efficacy of the Red Sea blockade enforced by the Yemeni Houthis. Thus far, five of the largest shipping firms in the world, including CMA, CGM, Hapag Lloyd, Maersk, and MSC, along with Evergreen and BP, have, quote, paused or suspended their services in the Red Sea, end quote, due to Houthi attacks, per The Economist. Collectively, these firms represent over 60% of global shipping. In response, the United States has announced its intention to form a naval bloc to combat the Houthis, risking further escalation in the region. Haaretz reports that Al Jazeera is, quote, preparing a legal file to send to the International Criminal Court over what it called the assassination of one of its cameramen in Gaza, end quote. The ICC complaint focuses on a cameraman, Samer Abu Dhaka, who was, quote, killed by a drone strike on Friday, December 15th, while reporting on the earlier bombing of a school used as a shelter for displaced people in the southern Gaza Strip, but will also, quote, encompass recurrent attacks on the network's crews working and operating in the occupied Palestinian territories and instances of incitement against them, end quote. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports at least 64 journalists and media workers have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. On Sunday, Pope Francis decried the murder of two Palestinian Christian women who had taken refuge in a church complex in Gaza, Reuters reports. The Pope mourned that, quote, unarmed civilians are the objects of bombings and shootings, and this happened even inside the Holy Family Parish Complex, where there are no terrorists, but families, children, people who are sick or disabled, nuns. Some would say, it is war, it is terrorism. Yes, it is war, it is terrorism. According to NBC Bay Area, quote, at least hundreds of union members rallied at Oakland City Hall Saturday to call for a ceasefire. The Labor for Palestine rally brought out members from 14 unions across the Bay Area, including longshore workers, teachers, electricians, and nurses. In addition to the call for the ceasefire, a statement put out by organizers said it also wanted the U.S. to stop providing military aid to Israel and an end to Israel's occupation. Organizers also said the rally was the first such labor-led rally in the U.S. this year. AP reports that Tesla is recalling, quote, nearly all vehicles sold in the U.S., end quote, following a two-year investigation by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA regarding, quote, a series of crashes, some deadly, that happened while the autopilot partially automated driving system was in use, end quote. Dylan Angulo, a driver who suffered brain trauma and broken bones in one such crash, said, quote, this technology is not safe. We have to get it off the road. The government has to do something about it. We can't be experimenting like this. Upon taking office, one of President Biden's stated foreign policy goals was to overturn Trump's designation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terror. Yet, according to The Intercept, quote, In a private briefing last week on Capitol Hill, State Department official Eric Jacobstein stunned members of Congress by telling them that the department has not even begun the review process, end quote. As the article notes, quote, The terror designation makes it difficult for Cubans to do international business, crushing an already fragile economy. The U.S. hardline approach to Cuba has coincided with a surge in desperate migration, 
with Cubans now making up a substantial portion of the migrants arriving at the southern border. Nearly 425,000 Cubans have fled for the United States in the fiscal years 2022 and 2023, shattering previous records. Instead of moving to stem the flow by focusing on root causes in Cuba, the Biden White House has been signaling support in recent days for Republican-backed border policies. In Chile, voters have rejected a far-right proposed new constitution, per PBS. As the article notes, this vote, quote, came more than a year after Chileans resoundingly rejected a proposed constitution written by a left-leaning convention and one that many characterize as one of the world's most progressive charters, end quote. The new right-wing draft was characterized as even more conservative than the Pinochet-era constitution it sought to replace, as it would have, quote, deepened free market principles, reduced state intervention, and might have limited some women's rights, end quote. As ex-president Michelle Bachelet, who campaigned against the new draft constitution, said, quote, I prefer something bad to something worse. In Argentina, radical right-wing president Javier Millet has announced a crackdown on civil society, quote, calling on armed forces to break strikes, arrest protesters, protect children from families that bring them to demonstrations, and form a new national registry of all agitating organizations, end quote, per Progressive International's David Adler. While unsurprising, this clearly flies in the face of Millet's purported anarcho-capitalist principles. Finally, did Southwest Airlines cancel or significantly delay your flight during the holiday season last year? If so, you could be entitled to a $75 voucher as part of the Department of Transportation's record $140 million settlement with the airline per the Hill. Under the settlement, which the Department of Transportation claims is the largest ever penalty against an airline for violating consumer protection laws, the airline is required to establish a $90 million compensation system to be used for passengers affected by, quote, controllable cancellations and significant delays, end quote. In addition to paying $35 million to the federal government, last December's Southwest meltdown included, quote, more than 16,900 flights canceled or delayed, affecting more than 2 million passengers around the holidays. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting with-